Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and good morning to you all, and thank you very much for being with us for this very different edition of the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast. Uh, Just to explain a little bit to those of you who may not be familiar with it, this is a new podcast that we started about four months ago, which gives me the opportunity to meet really interesting people and talk to them in a lot more time and detail than I get a chance to do on The Last Word at Today FM. That's not to say there's anything wrong with The Last Word in Today FM, let me just emphasize that. But I suppose it's just the nature of Evening Drive Time Radio that you have to get through a lot of different issues and topics to keep people informed of what's going on at the end of the day. And although we do occasionally do lengthier interviews, which might be up to a half an hour in duration, uh, we don't always get the opportunity to do so. And lots of times I feel I'd love to have kept the conversation going and haven't been able to. So the podcast gives me the opportunity to do that. And also it gives me the opportunity to meet lots of different people who at times may not be so well known, but when you actually hear them, they're really interesting people. Now, when it was suggested to come here today as part of the Electric Picnic and do a podcast, I was thinking, now, I need somebody who's really well known. I need somebody who's going to bring in an audience and a crowd because I'm not going to do that. So who best to get other than the person I would regard as our leading current affairs broadcaster. And that's something that she has established over the last 30 years uh, across her work on television in particular and also on radio. And as far from anything else, is also one of the nicest people you will meet in broadcasting. And I'm glad to say she has been a friend of mine for many years. And there wouldn't be that many people in broadcasting I'd know well or who would be friends. But Miriam very much has become that because of our children uh, crossing over with each other and meeting her in the schoolyard over the years and stuff. So, Miriam O'Callaghan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I'm delighted to be here, Matt. I just want to say it's really uncomfortable being the interviewee. Not my happy place, but I'm happy to be here. Why are you uncomfortable, Miriam? Because I think I'm just so used to asking other people questions. And I suppose when you're the person that someone's going to ask questions of, you think, oh, I'm not sure I like this, but it's fine. Okay, we have nothing planned in relation to this. We have no uh, agenda set out. So this is all going to come as a surprise to Miriam. And I hopefully by the end of it all, she's still going to be my friend at the end of all this. (laughs) Because the first question I'm going to ask you is, Miriam, the skincare business that you're leaving broadcasting to get involved in, how well is that going for you? Very, very well, actually. I know that was funny. I mean, most people probably know there was a Facebook issue, and it was actually quite interesting at the time because it was one of those things that would pop up all the time on Facebook, and people said, oh, that's really interesting, Miriam. You know, interesting, you're leaving broadcasting to set up your own face cream. I'm going, really? My mother's incredibly religious. She goes to mass every morning. And she was coming out of one mass one morning a few years back and she rang me and said, you never told me you've gone into the face cream business. Some woman at mass had said to her, "Uh, but it's going well. In fact, I sold so much of it. I'm thinking maybe I should set up a face cream. There, There is an important point in all of this though, because you did actually decide 
you had to do something about it. And you took a legal action against Facebook, uh, now Meta, which was settled earlier this year. After how many years did you actually have to fight legally with Facebook to take its responsibility seriously and not allow your image to be used by fraudsters to try and sell products? Yeah, actually, it is a serious point, and I'm just one individual, and to take on something like Facebook, they're so big, Meta, like, it's, it's not for the faint-hearted, and I started my life as a solicitor, I worked as a lawyer for a few years, so I know the last thing you want to be in life is going into the courts. My wise Kerry dad always said, don't end up in the courts unless you need to be there. So I had to think long and hard about it. But I had gone through every route you go through. Like you can imagine if it was someone here, when the ads appeared, you do your best. I went through the publicist first in RTE. Then I used any contacts I had in Facebook. Then I pleaded with people. It would be about, I suppose, five or six years it was going on. And I couldn't get the ads down. And, and everyone, a lot of people, like the receptionist in RT was saying, oh, people are phoning Miriam to buy your cream. And I'm going, this is daft. And then there was one serious moment, actually, my youngest boy is 16 now, but he was about 10 or 11. And he had an old phone of mine, so Facebook notices would come up on it. And his dad works away from home. And one night, Steve phoned me to say, poor Jamie had texted him, because an alert came up saying, Miriam O'Callan had been fired because of her face cream business. And he just texted his dad and said, did you know this about mum? And I was thinking, he's on his own, Steve works away. I was in prime time and I thought, that's the moment I decided. I really actually had to take this seriously. And actually I went to Paul Tweed. He's a really good solicitor and I said, what should I do? And he said, let's take a case. And then when I did take a case, to be fair, the moment I initiated proceedings, those ads came down. Do you know what I mean? Like for years I was told you couldn't get them down. But when I went to court, when I went to law, the ads never reappeared. So that worked. But there was risk involved by taking legal action and costs involved as well. Yeah, well, I mean, my poor mother was praying for me every morning, going, you know, you could lose your house. And like... You don't have the money to take an action against Facebook. And it was a serious point. But I thought, I'm vaguely well-known in a good job. If I do not have the courage to try to stop something like this, what about everyone else in Ireland who just has incorrect things written about them? So I felt I had a huge responsibility on my shoulders. I really did, actually. And as you know, the action went on for years. In the end, we won, which was great. And to be fair to Facebook, they set up this new tool, which makes it easier. If I'd had a device that I could report it to someone who would actually listen to me and say, this ad is false. And we now have that. So I actually was delighted in the end that we did do it. My mother's still praying, but you know, I didn't lose the house. What has your social media experience been like? Because I noticed there are times you have little flurries of activity on Twitter and then you disappear for a long time. Are you active on social media? Yeah, I do. I use my own Twitter account. Um, I post all my own tweets. I find it fine. I understand why a lot of people go off Twitter because it can be very nasty. And certainly, you know, I wouldn't go on the... RTPT hashtag after you come off primetime because most people probably say you're hopeless, you're dire, you should be fired. 
But then most people on Twitter are very nice, so I don't allow the trolls put, uh, put me off. It's also so full of information, Twitter. Like, I follow things like music and ballet and law and things I'd never know about, so I'm not going to be driven off a really interesting platform by a few miserable people. Also, Seamus Heaney gave me great advice years ago that if anyone is ever difficult to you, and that can include a troll, treat them with two small words, implacable courtesy. I have used that every day of my life since Seamus gave me that advice, and I use it with trolls. And a lot of the time, if you do go back to someone who's being mean, they're so disarmed that you've been polite and you've been nice back, they often start being nice. Do you mute or do you block? I mute. Why the difference? I don't know. I'm hoping they don't know I've muted them. What you see, block means they can see you block them. Mute's kind of like, I just really don't want to see, see you. I don't like muting people because I think we all deserve to be criticised. It's just some people are just nasty. Isn't that it? And do you take criticism personally if you do see it in social media, uh, particularly after presenting an important primetime? I think I learn a lot from criticism. My husband always says I'm quite good at taking criticism because I think a lot of the times I know myself if I've messed up in an interview or missed a good question or was over-aggressive or too nice. I know myself when I've done wrong. So half the time you just know, actually, that's a very valid point. And I'll go back to someone and say, I agree, that wasn't a good interview. I don't have a problem with criticism. How else do you learn? Do you watch yourself back after you've done Never. They laugh at me at home. I, ha I'm, I am obsessively terrified about seeing myself on television. If I come in and there's a promo for primetime, because I do live television, so you can't see yourself at home unless you choose to watch yourself back, which I think would be really bizarre. So if I come in and there's a promo, I'll literally walk straight out of the room. And then just going back to the whole social media thing again, I mean... Does it worry you that so many people now are moving towards getting their news from social media rather than getting it in the old-style conventional fashion that you as a broadcaster would present? No, I think I understand it. Like, I have eight children. The youngest is 16, one's in school, three boys in college, four girls in their 20s, one in their 30s. And apart from the eldest girl, they all, like my 16-year-old, only watches television to watch a football match. And he gets all his news, and my boys in college get all their news online. That's just the way of the world. That's like people saying, oh, the wheel is invented. We need to worry about what went before. No, I think it's fantastic. I, however, do not agree that television is dying or that radio is dying. I think they're still in a very healthy position. And I think young people, as they get older as well, as you have children, you tend to end up worrying more about things like the cost of your mortgage or homelessness. And I think people are drawn more to programs like Primetime as they get a bit older. I think that's true. But then why are you still hopeful, though, for the future of radio and television? As Well, certainly in the case of television, not as much radio. The audiences do seem to be contracting and people move away from the live television experience to watching things that are streaming. Yeah, I hear you, but like the, the, the death of television has been predicted for quite a number of years now. Live television is in a very healthy state. And you know, you saw during COVID 
I think like me, you were lucky enough, privileged enough to work during it. And when there are crises, and they do come and they do go, but they come, and they will continue to come for so long as you and I live, people turn to media they trust. And whilst most of the time things are trucking along and they don't worry about it, when something like COVID happens, people turned in in hundreds of thousands to prime time. Like they really did. And I think they will always do that because they'll go, they might watch with a half heart going, as the woman in Tesco and Ratmine says to me, Jesus, Miriam, do you always have to be giving us bad news? But they watch, maybe from behind the sofa going, no, don't tell me that. But no, I have, I have great faith in TV. I think live TV and sport in particular, news and current affairs is always going to keep going. It might be fair to describe Emily Maitlis and the BBC, or now gone from the BBC, as your counterpart across the water, uh, given that Newsnight on much the same time as Primetime, very high-profile presenter. She recently left BBC and made a very interesting speech at a, a conference in Edinburgh in which she made a lot of criticisms of political interference at the BBC, but also made very interesting comments about balance and the alleged requirement for balance in dealing with news and current affairs. What were your opinions as to what she had to say about sometimes that you give a wrong impression to the audience by trying to be balanced? The whole thing about equivalence. I love Newsnight. It's where I met my husband in 1995, so I have a soft spot for that. She's an absolutely brilliant broadcaster, Emily. I disagree with her. I've only ever worked for public service broadcasters. Obviously, when I was in Newsnight, I was there for 10 years, and now I work for RTE. I don't agree that if you're talking about a subject that you can have too many on one side and not on the other. And I know more or less that's what she's saying, that, okay, say you take something like anti-vaxxers, or if you take something you like Trump, um, and the march in the capital, that there's only one side to that. And trying to give another balanced view is wrong. It, it, it's incorrect, and it gives an unbalanced view. I disagree, mainly because in RT and the BBC, we have a license fee. And a license fee is paid by everybody in the country. And everybody has a different point of view. And we may think, as we work in the media, and many of us possibly think a certain way that everyone else thinks like that. They don't. Therefore, when I present primetime, for instance, during the repeal debate or during the marriage referendum debate, there are two sides to that. And not everyone will want to hear them. But we have to be completely impartial. And I have no problem with that. I don't want people to know what my views are. And I love when people come up to me and say, I couldn't work out what your view was on that. And I go, thank you. That means I've succeeded in doing what I want to do. So I respect her. I think she's brilliant. I completely disagree. But let me use another example that she cited, which was the Brexit debate in the United Kingdom. And she said that if they wanted to discuss the economic impacts of Brexit, they would be able to find any one of 60 to 80 economists to argue the negative side of Brexit in about five minutes and put the best person on. They could spend six hours trying to find somebody who would say Brexit is good for the economy. They would put that person on, and then that person would just tell a whole heap of lies, but then they were allegedly balanced. But you see, that is exactly what I'm talking about. Because is there a group think 
in people like journalists or economists or, or people with views on the economy because the majority of British people, albeit a slim majority, voted for Brexit. Those people are there. I used to live in London for 10 years and I even now know a lot of people who hated the notion that everyone thought they were just patronised, that in some way they were foolish, that they made the wrong decision because clever people like Matt or Emily or me didn't put the right people on to tell them what they should think. I don't believe that. I think people have their own views. My husband's a great line, which is that when you do a programme, you don't need to beat people over the head with a stick and say, this is what I think you should think, because Brexit is bad. No, you put the arguments before people fairly and squarely, and they make up their own mind. It's not for me to tell them how to vote or what they should think. I give them both sides, and if it's harder to find one in a liberal area of whether it's academia or whatever, I will give them both views, and then they can make up their own mind. I'm not going to ask you about alleged political interference at the BBC because Steve, your husband, runs BBC Scotland and it would be unfair to put you in the spot, something that might come back. But I'm going to ask you about RTE and political interference. Have you ever experienced it there? I really, really haven't. You know, people said to me, oh, do you give politicians questions? Like, Matt, the truth is, we walked in here today, you said, do you want to talk about it? I said, no, ask me whatever you want. I have never, ever been told by a politician or their handlers what to ask. Now, is it the case that probably the following day, if politicians' minders aren't happy with the interview, you can be pretty sure, as old as Irish whiskey is, that they ring up and complain every other day. I think that's par for the course. I think Alistair Campbell, you know, I interviewed him about that. They all do that, and that happens in Ireland too. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. Of course they ring up and complain. doesn't mean you do anything about it. Let them complain. Okay, let's talk about a few other different things. You mentioned that you follow ballet on Twitter, which made me wonder, was that your secret ambition growing up, that you wanted to be a ballerina? No, it's just an example of something different. No, I'm five foot ten and a half. I think I'd be in a bit big now to be a ballerina. I'd have been hopeless. Actually, I do keep getting asked to do Dancing with the Stars, let me put it out there. I will never be doing Dancing with the Stars. Why not? I love dancing, but I, actually, funny enough, recently one of the reporters on Primetime a week ago got married, called Connor Wilson, and the entire Primetime team was there, but they were laughing at me because the dancing started after the meal. Most people have a dance and sit down. I was still on the floor at one in the morning. I, I love dancing, but I'm a terrible dancer. But would you not enjoy getting the training that you would get? I dancing? couldn't or, think of anything worse. Or is it that you need a drink or two before you dance? No, it just, I just... Also, I have a busy life. It was funny, actually. I drove my sister down here this morning because she's an historian and she's speaking this afternoon on a panel about Michael Collins. And between the time we left my house and we got about three miles up the road... About four different children had phoned for different things, including one of my sons, who's a 20-year-old, sorry, Connor, and he'd been working at Electric Picnic, came home last night because he did their tent collapsed, and then he has only one pair of shoes, and the shoes were soaking. My sister said she's never been so exhausted, so I said, look, we'll go back to the house. Believe it or not, I have a pair of size 12 Duns runners I bought about six months ago for this eventuality. 
So she said, what? You've brand new shoes at home just because you thought he would get soaked at Electric Picnic. So, no, I wouldn't have the time for Dancing with the Stars. Of course, Dancing with the Stars is for celebrities. Yeah. You're a bit of a celebrity as well, aren't you? How do you cope with that as being a serious broadcaster doing news and current affairs and yet in some quarters been treated as a celebrity? Jesus, this is Ireland. Who is a celebrity in Ireland? It's like when people sometimes say, oh, will I give your number to someone? I said, everyone in Ireland has my telephone number. Like, we're all almost related. The island is tiny. My cousins farm a farm down in outside Castle Island. And now, what is a celebrity? No one in Ireland is famous. And you do sometimes find people get a little bit of notions about themselves. So I say, have my number, have my email. Like, is the idea that they're going to be ringing me up every minute? I'm not a celebrity. No one's a celebrity in Ireland. Yeah, but there was one incident, and I don't know whether you care to be reminded of it, but it does strike me as quite shocking that after the birth of one of your children... Oh, Jamie, yeah. <laughs> a newspaper sent a reporter in to try and interview you within how many hours of the birth? No, I hadn't been stitched. I'd had to, like, literally... It was quite a funny moment. It was the cesarean section in, the, in Hollis Street. And even, I do, I think, have a good sense of humour. And, like, it was a bit of a traumatic birth because it was a placenta previa, so blah, blah, blah. Um, but, and there was about 10 people around because they thought I could die, but I didn't die. And uh, that was fine. And then the baby was tiny. He was actually only four pounds, seven ounces, quite small. But he didn't need to go in an incubator. He's now six foot two and a half. And uh, so Steve went out of the room and I was left there. And then the surgeon momentarily left. But he said he was coming back in, obviously, to stitch me properly. And the next thing, this guy came in the door and said, hello, I'm from the Daily whatever. I went... I said, you have to be effing joking. I said, I said, I've just had a baby. I was still covered in blood. And he said, I just, I just, I said, you ju you're just going. I said, go or I'll run after you. So that was it. I didn't mind. I felt a bit sorry for him, actually. The matron then found him, and I think she almost beat him up. <laughs> sorry, did you not get in touch with his editor afterwards? No, not in a million years. Why would I do that? Life is short. I try to be nice to people. He clearly shouldn't have walked in on me. I think he got a bit of a shock himself. It looked like an abattoir. He was like, Jesus, is this what I bargained for? So no, I like, no, I felt sorry for him. No, no. Why would I complain him? Is that the worst thing that's happened to you? I, that's probably up there. Um, yeah, most times people are lovely. Like... I think I'm lucky. I always say, and I mean this, um, and we were talking about it this morning, I had a wonderful sister who was just a year younger than me. She was born in 61, I was born in 60. And we were really close because we had babies quite young. And out of the blue, she was sitting in my house late in 1994, age 32. And long story short, she didn't feel well. And the following February, she died of stomach cancer, which is very unusual. And she had two tiny little babies. And I always say my life is like BC and AD, Anne's death. And I was so angry, really angry for my parents because they were so hardworking, like a teacher, civil servant. They'd done all their best for their kids. We went to free schools, but they looked after us. And when she died, I was just so angry, but I also changed my life. And I've been so positive because I think 
Every morning I wake up, I am so grateful for my life. I am so grateful for my healthy children. I am so grateful for, to have a man who loves me as he does. I'm really just so lucky. But I do think, yeah. about your parents who you referred to a number of times and because I've met your mother who's a great character uh, real good solid Kerry people is it yeah no my dad was a great guy from a small holding I once said that on television mom goes it wasn't that small it's like tiny but anyway small town snobbery it was a small holding it's still there my first cousin farms it great James Callahan someone dropped the O um, but he's still James O'Callaghan in a place called Curro. Most people have never heard, but Moss Keen Territory. Mick Galway, Mick Doyle, Mick Galway, a lot of famous and rugby Jay, internationals. Indeed, who, a few caps for Ireland. Yeah, yes. so great footballers there. And uh, he grew up on a small farm. They'd no money, but he was on a clishta, thank God, loads of brains. Got into the civil services, a lot of that generation did. Liked, was very friendly with Milo Murherthick. I was talking to Michal the other day about that, and his brother Paddy. He married my mum. They met under Cleary's clock, as you do. And uh, she's a school teacher. He's dead. He died, actually, eight weeks after my sister died, going out to get her mass card printed. But um, just, I think, the shock of it all. And then my mum is alive. She's unbelievable. She was a school principal of a big girl's school. She's 94. She lives alone. She knows more about current affairs than I do. I ring her every night after primetime when I'm driving home. She'll usually critique my interviews and she'll normally say, I don't know about red jackets, you know. Like, you know. Sorry, is she, you know? A big, is she a bigger critic than social media? Oh, yeah, she really is, actually. She's like once a headmistress, always a headmistress. But she lives alone and she's fantastic. So I feel blessed. I think they're that generation of Irish people who didn't have much money, but they worked very hard. She still hopes I'll go back to being a solicitor. She's not sure about this broadcasting arc. Tell us, why did you pick being a solicitor initially as you've been your career path? Oh, great, great thought. We go to Dingle all the time. I was 16 when I did my leaving cert because my mother's way of childminding, she would five kids, was to put us into junior infants when we were three. Two and a half, actually. So I ended up getting my leaving results. My birthday's in January, so I did my leaving, obviously, when I was 16, and uh, did well. And then my dad, my wife's dad, sat on the steps of the house we rented in Green Street in Dingle. He said, now, Miriam, I think you should be a doctor. I said, Dad, I don't like blood. He said, okay. So what about veterinary? He was literally going down the points. I said, I really can't imagine myself giving birth to calves. I just can't see it. And then the next one was law. He said, well, what about being a solicitor? And I thought, okay, I'll do law. And I did law in UCD and went to Blackhall Place. Did you like it? Yeah. I seriously might go back to it. Yeah, I do. I, I think it's a brilliant discipline, being a lawyer. Like every night in primetime, do you not find that? It, it makes your arguments and your brain quite rigorous because you have to think about the arguments quite logically. 
And I mean, it's also, you have to work really hard. But a solicitor does the sort of the, the paperwork and prepares the barristers. Might yeah. you not have been better suited to being a barrister? No, because I really don't like being the centre of attention. I, I know. Ironic. I, you know, I, it's interesting. I opted to be a solicitor rather than a barrister because that's what I like to do. I like to do the kind of hard work. I mean, you hear about people who want to be presenters or like they dream about it when they're young. I'm an accidental presenter. I started as a researcher with Eamon Andrews, if anyone remembers him, on the This Is Your Life program. And then I became a reporter. And it was only after that that I became a producer, a BBC producer, because that is where the power is, by the way, if you ever want to go into broadcasting, become the producer. And it was only after that I got asked to be a presenter, but I didn't really want to be a presenter. I think it's quite a fickle, insecure job, really. But it's worked, okay? It has for 30 years. But actually, go back for a second to This Is Your Life. I'm sure there must be loads of people here in the audience who remember This Is Your Life, particularly in its heyday with Eamon Andrews. Um, it was an Irishman who was so successful at a difficult time in Britain. Who were the best people that would have been the subjects of This Is Your Life that you would have helped prepare for the programme? Yeah, and just on Eamon, he was such a beautiful man. Like, at that time, he was getting, like, 15 million viewers in the late 1980s for his show. It was, like, off the scale. And he didn't know me. I just got the job through, through, through two fantastic Jewish guys who took a punt on me at the interview. They said, why should we give a job to a Dublin solicitor? I said, because I'll be good. And they gave me a break, which I'm eternally grateful for. But we went to America and we did Bob Hope's This Is Your Life. And uh, we stayed up very late drinking in a lovely hotel. I thought I'd made it. Like, I came from being a solicitor in Dublin, quite a boring life. And suddenly I was in Hollywood. I was like, wow, Miriam, you've really made it. I was about 25. And then we went to bed at four in the morning. Eamon went to bed earlier, much earlier. And my phone rang in my hotel bedroom. I always remember there were no mobile phones. And it was Eamon saying, Miriam, I said, hi, Eamon. It was actually 10 to eight. He said, I'll meet you downstairs in the lobby at half eight. I said, okay, why? He said, Mass is at nine. This was in Sunset Boulevard, and I thought, oh, Jesus, I, he hasn't lost his roots. I'm never going to lose my roots. So there I was with the hangover going down to church in Sunset Boulevard. I love Damon Andrews because he never, ever lost who he was. So people like that, I suppose. I met Pele, George Best. When I think back now, it was just one of those shows where loads of great people came on. We did Pat Jennings, This Is Your Life, The Goalkeeper. Such a beautiful man. He's still a beautiful man. Bob Geldos, This Is Your Life. I did the Year of Live Aid. Quite interesting life when I think about it now. And did those people, were they genuinely surprised when he appeared with the Red Book? Or did some of them know in advance it was going to happen? Honestly, they didn't know. I, I know that sounds hard to believe. They didn't know because Paulie Yates was married to Bob at the time. And so obviously he arranged it with Paula. She was very, very nice. And no, she didn't tell him. So then you decided to come back to Ireland. I have to tell a little story here because Miriam's return to Ireland ended my career as an <laughs> RTE television presenter. I didn't know about it. <laughs> uh, I told her about this years ago and I keep reminding her of this, that she finished my career. She came back to present a programme called Marketplace, which Vincent Ball and myself had co-presented for the previous year. 
It had gone very well in the ratings on RT2 as it was then, so it got moved to RT1, but because it was getting moved to RT1, Vincent and myself got dumped to accommodate the return to Ireland of Miriam O'Callaghan, which was a brilliant decision on RT's part, and I'm very glad they did it. Why did you come back to Ireland? I didn't know anything about that, by the way, to be honest. Um, well, it's a good question. I suppose I kept, no, but I kept my job in the BBC until 98 as a reporter on Newsnight. And I didn't take a full-time job with RT until 96 on primetime. I think it was because also I had young children. And then when my sister got ill, there's no way I was going back because she had two tiny little girls as well. I had four little girls at the time. Um, so I came back mainly for family reasons, Matt, because I know a lot of people do well here and think, oh, I might go somewhere like Newsnight. I left BBC Newsnight and had a very glorious career there and came home. It was harder, actually, in Steve, my husband, because he's from Belfast, but I had four young children from my first marriage. I was separated, and he had to obviously give up his job to, in the BBC to come and live with me, which was fine, and now he's back in the BBC. So all things end happily in the end. What was your 10 years in London like? Could you have seen yourself living there? I mean, was it a good time? Could you have seen yourself living there? I love London. I have a daughter living there now as well. I don't know. Did you ever live in London? No. I love it. I don't know if anyone here has ever lived here. It's a fantastic city. They love the Irish. They're incredibly magnanimous towards us. I know we have not the great history between our islands, but I loved working there. I loved working in the BBC. But sorry, I was incredibly you, happy. I am interested in that because the period you were there, if I'm correct, when it were mid-80s to mid-90s, yeah. when it wasn't always good for Irish people to be in the UK. I mean, is this that this is typical Miriam O'Callaghan, that you were able to see the positive side of things, that people were nice to you, whereas maybe other people would have spotted an anti-Irish resentment that you managed to maybe paint out? No, it's a very good point. And I'm not saying my experience was everybody else's experience, but I can only speak. I was, I had young children. Um, I found people lovely. I found my career was promoted by great people within the BBC who looked after me. None of them were Irish. I, I, I made it in an English city supported by English people who gave me great breaks. I'm eternally grateful and I'll be, I love it. I love going to London. You now have many of your children are adults. So have any of them emigrated? Would be that something that you would want for them or would it make you sad to see them going, out, going abroad? I dream of loneliness, I say that sometimes, because, no, I've got four living at home, three in college, one in school. Um, I've only one girl who's gone away, actually. Um, she's here today, and she's living in London, about to go to New York, actually. So the, all the rest are at home. So I mean, in Ireland. I, I don't know, I love, I think you should have children to let them fly away. You know, they talk about Velcro children. I always think, make your kids very independent. Love them, love them loads, love them forever, but let them fly away. And I just think when I hear, okay, she's moving to a job in New York, I think, that's so exciting. You're only young, enjoy it. This is our only life. I'd love to believe like my mother believes, that we go somewhere else. I think it's great to have that faith because it makes your life and your mortality easier to take. But I think this is it, guys, and I love it. And therefore, I don't want to waste any minute of it. And I don't want any of my children to waste any minute of it. So go out and have fun. Yeah, but famously, you were the mother of eight. 
So you've had a very busy house over the years. So how have you coped with them Badly. leaving and then having smaller and smaller numbers? I mean, what do you think of a future in which none of them will be there? Listen, Matt, I still have four living at home and our dog, he's like sleeps with us. Um, I don't think I'll ever be lonely. I have four children, that's still a lot living at home. And, you know, I don't know, I won't go on about... Nobody ever replaces toilet paper in a house, except the mother. Does no one, just like, does no man or see that the toilet roll holder is empty? Sorry, excuse me. I don't understand. Men, defend yourselves here, please. All the men who buy toilet paper, put up your hands immediately, please. (laughs) Look at this, Miriam. It's more than half the room. Okay, I apologise. Okay. Okay, what about the bins in the bathroom? Who empty? Oh, Jesus, okay. You see, Miriam, okay. you've spoken for years about how wonderful Steve is. <laughs> we, finally, we finally found his Achilles heel. <laughs> That's actually very funny. And I'm okay, one last thing. Do you leave cupboards open in the kitchen when you cook? I'm sorry, is there something wrong? My son was cooking the other night. I walked in. It was like every cupboard door is open. I'm going, close the cupboard doors. Okay, listen, I'm keeping an eye on the time because we have, there's a program of events coming through here today. So I am willing, if Miriam, if you're willing, we can have a microphone going around to get a few questions from no people problem. here in the audience if you want. Well, while we're getting that organized, and we take gentlemen here in the front first, but I actually am going to ask one question before while we get the microphone to this man in the front row. And uh, Miriam, what sort of president would you be? <laughs> You'll never know. You'll never, I'm never going to be the president, yeah. But Miriam, you would be a wonderful president because, and I'll tell you why, and don't interrupt me on this, you have the legal training, which is very important for the fact that you would be reading legislation and important documents coming through, but you also have the ability to connect with people that you genuinely, and I didn't use that word deliberately. <laughs> genuinely? That, that just slipped out. Anyway... You have a brilliant way of getting on with people, and people like you. Who better to be president than you? I'm being honest. This is an exclusive. I will never, ever run for the presidency of Ireland. Why is that? Oh, well, first and foremost, obviously, joking apart, obviously, I'm not saying I'd ever, ever in a million years get it. So that's a given. But you know what? I have a shared life. I have eight children, I have a beautiful granddaughter now, Ava, I have my mom, and when you go into that, I know I live a public life now, but it is different to actually doing a public role that's so important on behalf of your nation, and I wouldn't be able to give it the time that it would need to be. I really mean that, and I look forward to whoever is, and I'll be interviewing you in prime time about why you should be president. I'll be saying, Matt said it should have been me. Would you worry, though, about what you'd have to go through to become president? The interviews with people like, well, whoever in your absence would be interviewing you in prime time. Yeah, the presidential debates are really tricky. I find them. Do you find people talk? I don't find my job stressful. I find those debates very stressful, mainly because it's so hard for them. Like, it's very, very stressful for the candidates. And I just hate them. I'd really be happy never to do that. I'm going to ask someone about the toilet holder. Yeah, no. 
Okay, we're going to get the microphone around. I think I actually, unfortunately, preempted your question. I'm sorry about that. But I want a quick poll. How many people in this room would vote for Miriam O'Callaghan as president? I think you just won the presidency there, Miriam. Not unanimous. Not you. There are some people who want to vote for somebody else, but I think you'd have a good, good shot of it. How would you treat the situation if your brother Jim became leader of Fianna Fáil and became Taoiseach? My mother would be delighted. My mother has five children. Obviously, my poor, beautiful sister died. But we make the joke, and she's a wonderful woman. Jesus, if she was here, she'd kill me. Which is that she's one son and three daughters now, but it's my son, the engineer, my son, the... She'd be over the moon. I adore my only brother. I've nothing to do with his political life. There were no politics in our family at all. There are no politicians. Um, my mum's dad was very much Michael Collins, Finnegale. So my relations, many of them in Kerry, vote Republican. So I have a Labour supporter and another side of the family. So I'm a mixed bag and I'm married to a Northern Protestant. So I'm a, I'm a mixed bag of so many different contrasting and competing ideologies, which I think makes me, I hope, quite fair. But uh, I adore my brother, but I've nothing to do with his life. And I had my own glorious career long before he ever thought about politics. So it's a feminist issue. My career is mine. Miriam, you very skillfully avoided the question, which was, what would you do if he became Taoiseach? Ring my mother, and she'd be so happy. <laughs> okay, let's get a gentleman back here. Hello, Miriam. Um, out of your long career, interviewing people like politicians and famous people in sports, athletes, who was the most difficult to like interview? Like, if they had opinions, like, what am I even doing here? Type of thing. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I know what the answer is to that, actually. Um, there was one funny story, and it was a bit of an awkward one. It's a good few years back, and we were doing a story about breastfeeding, the promotion of breastfeeding. I know this sounds an odd one. And I had a great editor at the time, Noel Curran, and the woman was booked by a researcher to come on, and she herself was talking about that she was still breastfeeding, right, and she wants to talk about it and everything, so we came in. So the next thing I noticed is this woman walked into the studio to talk about breastfeeding. She was at least 85. And everyone goes, how did that happen? And it was just a very odd booking. There was a strange researcher at the time. So she sat down. I was doing an item about breastfeeding. It was so inappropriate. So it wasn't that... She was being difficult. It was the woman, obviously, didn't know anything about breastfeeding. She had never breastfed. In fact, she had no children. <clears throat> and there was... Yeah, exactly. There was one other funny one about army deafness. Do you remember the army deafness cases? Long story short, Donna Diamond, great guy now, edits the Six and One News. He had done a report on tinnitus. And then it was great. And then at the end of it, they said, Miriam, I was in the studio on my own. It was a long film. They said, Miriam, you're going to now interview the world's leading expert on tinnitus. He's Canadian. I said, great, great, great. So I just said, oh, that report from Donna Diamond. And now I'm joined by Professor Harry Gobbledyhanger. I can't remember his name. Hi, Professor Gobbledyhanger. I gather you're the world's leading expert in tinnitus. What's your reaction to that story? There's a big pause. He goes... I'm really sorry, he goes, I'm an obstetrician. I know nothing about tinnitus. 
Now, this is live television. And the said Noel Curran, who I love very much, was in my ear, meant to be giving me advice with questions. He goes, you're on your own now, baby. <laughs> that is a true story. I spoke to the guy for five minutes. I was thinking, what the... I said, when you were in medical school, do you remember studying deafness? But it was pre-social media, so no one attacked us. Yeah, but hang on. No what, one remembered. What did your mother say in the phone call afterwards? I don't think I rang her, because she might be going, what? Yeah. Do we have more questions from the audience, please? Gentleman back there, standing by the pillar. How are you doing? Um, apart from your brother, are any of the current politicians capable of being anything else other than populist? Are any of them actually capable of making a hard decision, or is, it, uh, is that a thing of the past? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I wouldn't want to be a politician, if I'm honest. I think you're you're driven by so many different, I don't know, needs, demands, expectations. I honestly don't go, and I worked with Jeremy Paxman with the line that every politician in front of you is a liar, though he actually didn't say that. It was misinterpreted, he says. I kind of think most of them don't mean that badly. Do you know what I mean? Like, they go into politics for their own reasons. Some people will say it's for power. I don't really know how much power you have in Ireland if you're a politician. I, they sit before me and most of the time, I find them, most of the time, trying to be straight. Uh, I, I don't really know about whether or not they, they're trying to be populist. I do think if you need to be re-elected, you probably need to think about it. But at the same time, I suppose, the great politicians, the people that matter, make tough decisions. And it's easy to make poppy decisions, but look, I'm not a politician and I wouldn't ever want to be a politician. I'd much prefer what we do. Any more questions, because we're coming towards the time and I need to wrap up, and I have a few more I want to finish off with myself, with Miriam. Okay, Miriam, you have a weekly radio show, which is terrific on a Sunday morning, twice a week with prime time. You've done some major events for RT over the years. You've done some great documentaries. Yourself and Steve did some wonderful political documentaries. But what ambitions do you have left in your career? Um, I kind of never had a plan. I know some people have plans, and I love reading the Sunday Times, like magazines, and I'm fascinated by people who said, well, when I was 22, I'm going, really? Um, I never had a plan. I never had great ambitions. I just wake up every day. I love what I do, and I, I want to do what I do well on a daily basis. I also have a big mantra at work, which is work hard, play hard, enjoy yourself. It's your only life. I don't have great ambitions. I'm going to be doing a documentary on the Good Friday Agreement 25th anniversary because I was there. I feel that's a privilege. I'm interested in that. I love what I do. I mean, it's well known down the years. I did get offered to go to different kinds of current affairs shows in RT. I love primetime. I think it matters. And it matters certainly at times like COVID. And I love it. So my ambition is to keep doing what I do and try to do it okay. And so just to finish on a slightly lighter note, what are you going to go and see here at Electric Picnic for the rest of the day? Well, I'm going off to host brunch in the Leviathan for Nishanon. Um, That's in the tent in there next door. With some of my great old colleagues like Dave McCullough, who they stole from me in primetime. And uh, yes, that's what I'm going to do now. Yeah, but are you going to go see any of the bands playing later? Arctic Monkeys. Same as me. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, would you please give a big round of applause for our fantastic guest, Miriam O'Callaghan.
if you came in late or if you want to hear it all again, we will be uploading that as a Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast during the week. And if you like it, please recommend it to friends, share it. You can get it on the Go Loud app or Spotify or Apple or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And there's lots of other really brilliant, interesting people there. The current edition is Dervla Walsh. I don't know if you know who Dervla Walsh is, but she is the woman, the Emmy-winning director who's behind the new Sharon Horgan uh, brilliant show, Bad Sisters. Uh, but Dervla is a terrific interviewee. That's there at the moment. There's lots of other really interesting people from the last four months that we've had, and there's lots more to come. So hopefully you will subscribe and get used to Magnified with Matt Cooper. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. We really appreciate you taking the time to come in here this morning in such a large number. Thank you all very much. Have a great time. And that was today's edition of the Magnified with Matt Cooper series. If you enjoyed it, well, tell a friend, please. Share it via social media. And subscribe as well to hear each new edition each week in association with MG. So from now, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you very much for having been with us.